Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Life and Books and Everything. This is Kevin DeYoung, and I'm glad to be joined with my special guest, Dr. Thomas S. Kidd. Tommy, uh, I'll turn it over to him in, in just a moment. But I do want to thank all of our listeners who have followed with LBE throughout this season. And uh, we're going to take a break over the summer. So I think this is the last podcast for a little bit, but the timing is good here because we're going to talk about Tommy's book on Thomas Jefferson right as we come into the 4th of July weekend. But I'm grateful for Crossway sponsorship throughout this season and uh, also Westminster Books at various points. And uh, be looking forward, Lord willing, to be back at the end of the summer or beginning of the fall with uh, a new season of guests. And we'll have some time to have Colin and Justin back on as well. So for this uh, last episode, last, not least, uh, Tommy, thank you for being here. And uh, just tell us a little bit uh, about yourself, about your education background, your faith, and about the move that you and your family just made. And then we'll jump into the book. Sure. Well, I uh, grew up in South Carolina and uh, went to Clemson University. Mostly that was just because I like Clemson football. (laughs) Yeah. uh, um, But I I, uh, was I had a uh, my best friend in high school was a believer and um, he was sharing the gospel with me and uh, he got involved with the navigators at, at Clemson. And that's how I became a Christian is he led me through an evangelistic study. So I became a Christian uh, my freshman year at at Clemson. And uh, over time, uh, both got more intellectually engaged uh, as, as a person and as a believer, and uh, got interested in doing um, graduate work in history. And so um, I ended up going to Notre Dame uh, for a PhD and working with George Marsden, uh, who some listeners may know his his biography of Jonathan Edwards mm-hmm. and, and other work in American religious history. Um, and uh, so I got a, a job at Baylor uh, in uh, 2002 and uh, have had been there for 20 years. But uh, uh, over time, I, I had started uh, working as a visiting professor at Midwestern Baptist Seminary in Kansas City, and uh, got uh, sort of a taste for for that. And um, so we have just just moved uh, full time to Midwestern. And uh, as I'm talking to you now, have just moved to Kansas City. So okay, <laughs> with all wow. the associated uh, chaos with that, but uh, it it's really an exciting time. And uh, Midwestern is just growing like crazy. And uh, it's, it's an exciting opportunity for me to work directly with pastors, uh, which I really didn't get to do at, at Baylor since I was in a history department. Um, and, and so we're, we're just so excited for this new uh, chapter the Lord's taken us into. And how, how much will your work be similar and how much is going to be different? Because you're still a historian, you're doing that, but very different schools with different aims and different people that are coming, uh, how much overlap and how much is this going to be a different kind of work for you, Tommy? Yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful that I'll be uh, writing at the same pace. Um, I, I always have, and, and Midwestern has been very generous about the, the 
structure or the position that they want me to keep writing. Um, so that hopefully will be the same. Um, the, the classes and, and students that I'm teaching will be different to a significant extent. I mean, one is that because Midwestern is, is a seminary, I'm, I'm not going to be, uh, I mean, we have an undergraduate college, but I'm going to be teaching almost exclusively in the seminary. And so, uh, whereas at Baylor, uh, you know, at least half of my teaching responsibility was with undergrads here, mm-hmm. it's going to be with seminarians doing MDivs and PhDs and, and that sort of thing. And, and, uh, these people are, are wanting to be pastors or already are pastors for the most part, where at Baylor, I was, especially in, in the history graduate program, I was training people to teach in history departments, normally in, in Christian contexts. But, but um, it, it, so that's where the shift is going to be. But, but I, I'm excited about, uh, in some ways, I'll actually be able to teach a little more in my area of specialty because I'm, I'm teaching uh, seminarians. So in the fall, for instance, I'm teaching a class on the first and second great awakenings, um, which is a class that I, I never taught at, at Baylor. So and, yeah. and it's right in my wheelhouse as far as my expertise. So, um, so I'm excited about, about that part. And, and in, in some ways I'll be able to be even more focused here than, than I have been before. That's great. And how does your family feel about it? Your wife, kids? Yeah, I mean, uh, my my wife is a middle school science teacher, so uh, she she's employable wherever she goes. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, but for my kids, it's uh, it's definitely a transition time. My older uh, son is going to uh, Dallas Baptist University in the fall, so he was going to be transitioning okay. uh, out of the house anyway. Um, and then and then my younger son is is going into his senior year in high school. So he's going to do that here. And so that's, you know, that's a challenging transition for him, but that's, it's what he wanted to do. I, I actually offered to commute uh, for a year so he could finish out, but we decided that we were all going to um, move together. And, and uh, that oh. certainly made it more convenient for me and my wife. Oh, good. That, we'll get right into the book, but uh, I want to hear a little bit about your writing process. I think if I, if I remember these anecdotes correctly, uh, you know, different people and different writing professions or even creative professions have different ways of doing things. And some people uh, are wait till inspiration hits them or go for seasons without doing something and then they're all in. And then, but I, I think I remember hearing uh, Paul Simon, the the singer songwriter, just make a point every day to try to write some sort of music or some sort of verses, whether it comes to anything. I think Jerry Seinfeld said that about just writing some jokes each day. Now you're not writing jokes uh, <laughs> or, or music, but you're writing history and uh, you have a, a good reputation of being very diligent and disciplined. I forget if it's 1500 words or what exactly your word limit is each day, but you really set out each working day to get something done and little by little those add up to really a very prolific writing career already. So say a little bit about how you go about the discipline of writing. And it's not just, you know, uh, opinion pieces. These are really well-researched scholarly sorts of books. How do you do that? 
Right. Yeah. Uh, I am known for that. And I talk about that a lot in my newsletter, um, which if people are interested, they can find a subscription link in my Twitter uh, at Thomas S. Mm-hmm. Kid. But but um, yeah, I'm known for a thousand words a day. And I, I mean, there are writers who who do more than a thousand. The Princeton historian Anthony, Anthony Grafton, I think, does twenty five hundred, which seems kind of extreme to me. Yeah. But a um, thousand uh, and and the number doesn't really matter that much. I mean, you you might be in a career situation where you know 250 is more reasonable, but um, I, for me, a thousand I think helps to keep me on pace for various writing projects that I'm committed to at any given time. And so, um, and and I'm definitely of the Paul Simon school of you know that it's better to just go ahead and write some every day. Uh, rather than waiting for inspiration, because yeah. I, I just don't, I, I normally just don't, especially when I start writing in the morning, um, I usually don't feel inspired. In fact, I usually feel, you know, sort so the pull of, of procrastination and yeah. uh, struggle to get going. And so if I just know that that's, that's normal, and um, I'm going to write some that day, and hold myself to, to, you know, a rough standard about what a productive day looks like. Um, yeah, when I'm in the, in the writing process, um, that's, that's pretty standard work day for me. And yeah, I mean, I, uh, even as with the move to Kansas city, I kind of had in the back of my mind that I needed to get back to that, uh, discipline as soon as I could. Um, and so the past couple working days, I've, I've written a thousand words and, and that that really helps me to feel like I'm, you know, in, in the, you know, for the writing life is is sort of uh, solitary and can be kind of hard uh-huh. to know whether you're being productive or not. And so having that word count really helps me with that. Yeah, well, you've you've been very prolific in writing really good stuff and a number of biographies already. And this one just came out with Yale, Thomas Jefferson, a biography of spirit and flesh. I just finished this uh, last night uh, and thank you for it. So right off the bat, uh, why another biography of Thomas Jefferson? I mean, there may not be as many things as say Martin Luther, Abraham Lincoln, but there must be pretty close to the number of things that have already been written about Thomas Jefferson. So what what is your angle here? What is your overarching thesis? What are you trying to tell us about Thomas Jefferson? Obviously, some things that that scholars would have, you know, traversed many times, but you're trying to say something unique or new or in a different way, or you wouldn't have written the book. So why another book on Thomas Jefferson? And what are you trying to communicate through this biography? Right. There are many, many books on kind of every conceivable topic about Jefferson. Um, And what this is not is a blow by blow political biography, which there are some very fine examples of that and 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 those are are worth, worthwhile for sure uh, because Jefferson had such a uh, long and many ways successful political career. Uh, but what I'm trying to do in this book is is to answer the the what I think is probably the most pressing question about Jefferson 
um, which is kind of the how could he question. And, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, in our culture right now, in in light of all the, you know, the racial tension that we have and, and um, you know, grappling with our, our national history with regard to slavery and so forth, that there's a lot of people when they think about Thomas Jefferson that they think, how, how could he say all men are created equal in the Declaration and yet not only own hundreds of people as slaves, but we were almost certain that he carried on a long-standing sexual mm-hmm. relationship with one of his slaves, uh, Sally Hemings, um, and so how how could he do that? And and uh, that that is part of the 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 ethical conundrum of of Thomas Jefferson. Um, he's he's an enigmatic figure in terms of religion, his ethical commitments, and then the way that he actually lived. And so I'm trying to to probe beyond just the, the what comes so easily, which is just say, well, he's a hypocrite. Um, and and that that probably is is fair to a certain extent, but it's not a very historical answer. Right. Um, it, it, it tends to be the way we act now on social media and so forth. It's just if they're someone with problems in the past, which I think to some extent is everybody who's ever lived, except for a certain carpenter's son from Nazareth. Yeah, right. Uh, um, you, you know, well, if we can identify problems that are particularly uh, aggravating from a, a modern perspective, we just say, well, the, they were a hypocrite or, or a sinner, and and therefore we, we cancel them. And and I, I, I certainly think that Jefferson did things that were, uh, morally atrocious, um, but I, I also think that we can just sit with the the ambivalence and the enigmatic character of Jefferson and think about what he actually believed, what what his kind of ethical, philosophical, religious system was, and then how that matched up with um, how he actually lived. And mm-hmm. I, I think just sitting with those tensions. Um, and paradoxes is a, is a worthwhile historical uh, project. And so that that's basically what I'm trying to do in this book. So I, I think uh, I remember re- reading Gordon Woods say, the famous historian, say something like, you know, ever since Jefferson's death and even while he was still alive, in, in some ways the whole American experiment has interpret has been interpreted on the the back of Thomas Jefferson for good or for ill. So as Jefferson goes, so goes America, or as we're looking at America, so we go back and look at Jefferson. So if we want to say America is this great land of liberty and equality, we go to Jefferson's view on rights and what he did in the state of Virginia. And of course, most famously, in the declaration, if we want to say that America from the very beginning was not just hypocritical, but was built on the literal backs of enslaved persons, uh, sexual predators would be a contemporary phrase. You go back and you make that case with Jefferson, or you can say Jefferson was the great hero of the agrarian farmer. And he was the one who uh, had unbounding enthusiasm in the common man, I think in one of, uh, again, Gordon Wood's chapters, he, he uh, looking at the founders, he ends by, by just highlighting Jefferson's great confidence 
which came to be really rocked at the end of his life as he grew more aware of how this American experiment he helped to launch was not going the way he had thought it would. And yet Wood ends by saying, because of he had this unending confidence in the American people, we, we remember him and not James Madison. Well, I, I remember James Madison. I like James Madison. Uh, so I haven't forgotten him, but, but I understand the, the, the broader point that Madison had a little bit more of a, a realistic sense of who we are. So your book is really helpful in that you're, you are presenting a picture of Jefferson warts and all. Nobody's going to read this book and say, Oh, wow. I didn't, uh, he, you know, Tommy's presenting a Jefferson who is just this great hero. No, you, you actually come away seeing really up close and personal, uh, not just on the race issue or slave issue, but, you know, as a Christian, we'd say his, his, his various trysts, or at least seem to be liaisons with different women. So uh, my question, Tommy, is you worked on this probably over the course of you know, years, you already knew something a lot about Jefferson. You've written in this area many times, but having written the book, did you come away from this with more of an appreciation for Jefferson or more disappointed in Jefferson? Uh, I think more disappointed. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I knew about the slavery part, of course. Uh, it's hard to escape that as a, as a professional historian. Um, and I, I knew about his uh, s sort of exotic uh, religious views and, and a little bit about the Jefferson Bible, uh, which is his, uh, you know, kind of condensa condensation of, of the Gospels into a mostly a naturalistic kind of ethical uh, treatise of Jesus's teachings. But um, one of the things I... I I didn't quite realize uh, was what a disaster he was in terms of his personal finances. Yeah, um, yeah. And, Can you say more about that? Because I wanted to, that, that comes through really clearly uh, in the biography and isn't the sort of thing that's going to be on a plaque at Mount Rushmore and yet dominated his life in a lot of ways. So yeah, just keep going about his, you know, m mountains of indebtedness. Yeah, yeah, and and to be fair, I mean, uh, a lot of the people, in, especially in the South, the planters in in and aristocrats in the South of Jefferson's generation, that they tended to be in debt, um, and uh, and and sometimes they managed that well, and sometimes didn't, and Jefferson didn't, um, and and yes, it was it was a shadow over his his personal life. He he lamented it. He he inherited. A lot of debt from his father-in-law. Uh, he inherited slaves and land and debt, um, and uh, that that proved very difficult for him to ever get out from under. And 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 part of the reason for that is that Jefferson, uh, I think, was was really a compulsive spender, um, and he he uh, had things that he wanted to buy and to build that. He, he, he just never seemed to have considered the option that, that maybe he didn't need to do it. <laughs> yeah. um, and that, that was particularly the case, I, I think, with his uh, hosting and entertaining responsibilities, which were very significant as a diplomat in Paris. I think th this is where it probably really started, mm -hmm. is, is getting a taste for uh, Parisian culture and, and wine. 
Um, and then as president, of course, the, the president in those days had to pay out of pocket for household expenses. Um, and, and he spent uh, like nobody's business. There were years where he spent more at, at the president's mansion in D.C. He spent more on just wine than on paying his household staff. Yeah, <laughs> he he liked his his fine wine. He sure did, and he he at one point actually told his French wine agent uh, that price is no object; just get me the best vintage. Yeah, and I think that and they, his they wine did agent it. was quite happy to comply yeah. with that request. Um, and and it it comes to uh, Monticello. I mean, when he, he there were two different versions of Monticello in Charlottesville, his mansion there. He built one relatively modest version, then immediately tore it down and started on a much more lavish second version. Uh, and when he was done with the second version, then he started on another mansion in uh, near Lynchburg at Poplar Forest in Virginia. And you, you just think, why, why do you keep doing this when you are also constantly talking about how much you hate being in debt? Um, and, and some of it, the entertaining in politics is understandable, but a lot of it is just because he had this kind of idealized view of what his private world should be like. And he right. was just bound and determined to manifest that. Yeah. It, it's, it's hard for, at least I, I find it hard to, well, there's a number of aspects of Jefferson that are hard to, to grasp and, and reconcile. I'll say more about that, but this, this is another one of those. And, and you're right. This was not uncommon among genteel Southerners. Uh, you know, Washington had it to, to some extent, but didn't finish in as such dire straits as Jefferson did. It reminds me of that old, I don't know if you ever saw that old SNL sketch. It has Steve Martin and they're, they're doing, somebody is doing a little infomercial on this little book about debt. And it's just one page and it says, don't buy things you can't <laughs> afford. What? How does that work? Well, you sort of want to give Jefferson that, that book, but he had such the, uh, a vision for, this enlightened, he was cosmopolitan and yet agrarian, and he liked the hustle and bustle of the city. But of course, Monticello was his lifelong project. Why do you think for him and for that sort of planter class, you know, because he ended, you said, what was it two and a half million dollars in, in our terms in debt? Yes. $100,000. And then, so it's a, it's a lot of money. Uh, was it just his own sense of what the, the sort of person he thought he was meant to be that led him to this? You would think there must be people around him and, and the people in to whom he was in arrears who just said, okay, you got a big, wonderful house. Stop with all of the wine and the exotic plants. And why did it never occur to him to just, okay, trim back, read your books and stop living a life that you can't afford? Yeah, it, it, it's hard to say for sure, but I, I do think that part of it is what he thought, uh, he it, the, the way he thought he had to live and he had to entertain and host right. as a Virginia gentleman uh, and also as, a, as a, an exemplar of the Enlightenment. Um, and, and so uh, when 
for for instance, when when he uh, the, he was in bad shape in the eighteen teens, uh, you know, ten years before his death. But then, what really sealed his fate was that he he co-signed a loan with a, yeah. a relative uh, in the late eighteen teens, and then and then that person almost immediately died. And then the the nation entered the panic of 1819, which was an economic depression at, at the time. And so Jefferson called that his coup de grace. Uh, and and at that point, there was no way he was ever going to get anywhere close to being solvent. So so uh, he he uh, in that case, I think you you see there's some bad luck. Um, that that's definitely part of the story. But you know. Anybody with any financial sense would have recommended to him, do not co-sign this huge loan uh, with with this person. But he felt obligated, I think, as a gentleman, uh, and it, it, to to return favors and to to right. be be seen as being generous uh, and not to think about money in in a kind of grubby way. And so I don't, I just don't know if he really thought not co-signing that loan was an option and it just totally sealed his fate. And I think in that, I mean, that's, that's probably the number one moment that, that was so disastrous for him, but it also, I think is representative of his whole life that there were a lot of expenses and financial commitments that he made that he just didn't seem to feel like he had any option to mm-hmm. do otherwise. Yeah. I think you, you noted it was $20,000. So that's a fifth of his, his at death, indebtedness. So that was no small thing. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned this earlier, Tommy, and historians often you know, write about people in the past and, and mention their inconsistencies and their clay feet. And, and that's true. And that's going to be true of everyone. It does seem with Jefferson that the, the seeming at least inconsistencies or paradoxes get cranked up to 11, as Spinal Tap would say. Right. Uh, so you have this, that he was, you know, really adamant that the nation live within its financial means, but he didn't. He, you, you can find certain, you can find, you know, throughout his political career, statements on slavery that uh, are very commendable, wanting it you know, recognizing it as an evil, wanting to see the slave trade end, uh, private assurances to many people along the way that this was a bad thing. And yet that didn't translate into his personal life. You can look at the way he, you point out, he was almost invariably magnanimous in public and knew how to say the right things. And we can, and, and, and that's good. It's good to, it's better to have uh, you know your public figures be magnanimous in public, even if they're not so in private. But you said his you know animosity towards some of the other founders even was as intense as anyone in that generation. And he had a, a particular loathing for Patrick Henry, about whom you've also written a biography. So you can just go you know all across. The spectrum with Jefferson, and we haven't even gotten to religion, which I want to make sure we spend some considerable time on. 
But how do you explain? How do these things hold together? Or as a biographer, do you throw up your hands and say, I just don't know, but that's the Jefferson we have to us in the historical record, and we just have to deal with him? How do you make sense of what are really some pretty monumental different kinds of Jeffersons? Yeah. Well, I think it's it's a challenge that we're really wrestling with in in our cultural moment is you know, how, how do you still uh, appreciate, you know, good things about someone like Jefferson when, when there's such manifest, uh, you, you know, uh, appalling behavior? Um, and I think, I think one of the th- ways that I think through this issue uh, as a historian is, is thinking about you know what was realistic at the time. I mean, it, you, mm-hmm. you don't you, you don't want to go in the direction of sort of moral relativism, but you know you you look at somebody, for instance, uh, a couple of other people that I've spent a good time uh, researching and writing about is Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, uh, you know, evangelical leaders in the mid 1700s, right. and both uh, slave owners. And, and so Christians have really struggled to know what to do with 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 them. And, uh, you know, uh, for both, it was wrong for them to be involved with with slavery and uh, they they should have known better. Uh, but, you know, Whitfield's uh, sin in that in that matter, I think, is is much more grievous. I mean, in the sense that Whitfield is is a pro-slavery activist where Edwards, I think, is just sort of, you know, he's owns a few slaves, writes very little about it, certainly doesn't do anything politically about it the way that Whitfield does. Uh, but both of them have almost no one in their lives who is saying to them, don't you know that slavery is wrong? I mean, it's just so baked into Anglo-American culture at the time uh, that that they just don't have many people around them. I mean, I mean, John Wesley comes out later against slavery. John Newton comes out later against slavery. But Edwards and Whitfield are both dead by that time. So uh, some of it has to do with the context. Uh, and in Jefferson's case, you know, he he not only said that he knew slavery was wrong, but he did have people. Uh, throughout his life, including a couple of people he was, you know, relatively close to, like the who, Adams, yeah, like the Adams, uh, who who uh, you, you know knew that slavery was wrong, and even in in a few cases, he had Virginians who were pressing him to follow their example. They these are people who came to believe, usually as Christians, that slavery was wrong. And so they were emancipating their own slaves and, uh, and, and either moving with them or helping them to get out of the state, which was legally required. If you were going to uh, emancipate your slaves and they were pleading with Jefferson to set an example and do the same thing. And, and going back to the financial, I mean, <clears throat> this was something that Jefferson could just even if he was so inclined, he was such a disaster financially that there was no way he was going to think about mm. freeing his own slaves because you know, Jefferson was quite candid. They're his capital, right? I mean, the, if he's ever going to make money, he's got the money is going to be coming from uh, slave-grown agricultural products. So, uh, you, you know, Jefferson uh, is is you know confronted with this issue, 
And then, you know, it, it's also not entirely uncommon for slave masters to have sexual relationships with, with their enslaved women in particular. Uh, in fact, we are uh, pretty well certain that Sally Hemings is Martha Jefferson's half-sister, mm-hmm. uh, Jefferson's wife's half-sister, because they have the same father, uh, slave master, who's Martha Jefferson's uh and Sally Hemings' father. And so, you know, uh, it, it's it's a known practice to be having a sexual relationship with enslaved women. Um, but it is, it is still, uh, uh, you know, you talk about that it gets amplified with Jefferson. I mean, there are patterns of behavior that I think warrant the, the kind of amplification of our moral indignation about the way that he actually lived, especially in light of his stated belief on the issue of slavery in particular, that it was wrong in both Christian categories and the categories of the more secular enlightenment. And so just stay here for a bit, because this is the, you know, you say this is the central question in his moral universe, or at least our interpretation of it, and perhaps the most famous or infamous relationship or at least relationship question in the history of America is Jefferson and Sally Hemings. And you said, you know, she is the offspring of the same father as uh, Jefferson's deceased wife. And then the mother there, I think you said, was uh, was herself uh, the, the uh, a mixed race slave. And so you and then Hemings, I mean, at one point you say later in life, uh, she was recorded as a free white woman. So uh, there, there were obviously within her own lineage had been several of these slave master and slave relationships, which uh, of, of course were, were right to decry. Do we have any sense, and I think the answer is we just don't know for sure, but do we have any sense of uh, what a relationship between Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings uh, was like. And he sense I think you said at the end that she almost certainly was uh, there attending to him at the end of his life, which suggests, uh, however, things started out, not, you know, excusing that at all, but perhaps there, there, there was a genuine tenderness or affection between them. How do we make sense? And what, what do you think, as someone who's looked into the sources, try to understand what was the nature of their relationship? Yeah, I, I think it's important on uh, the, the Hemings-Jefferson relationship to kind of just draw a line at a certain point of saying we don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's, uh, I, I think, like everything else in American culture, it, it tends to go to extremes of you know, in some, uh, m- you know, movie or, or artistic relation uh, representations of the relationship, there has been this kind of interest in representing it as there's some kind of romance or love or so, right. something like that there. Uh, and then, the you know, the other extreme is is people who, who insist that you have to call it rape. It's just lifelong uh, predation and nothing yeah, else. And, yeah, and... Um, uh, and here I'm, I'm really just following uh, Annette Gordon-Reed, who is the most uh, influential scholar of that relationship. Um, and she's a historian at Harvard. And, and um, y- you know, it, it's it, there's a just kind of an opaque 
uh, you know, nature to their relationship because, of course, Hemings doesn't write, leave written mm -hmm. uh, accounts of, of her life or, or the relationship. And Jefferson doesn't either. Um, so everything that we say about it is circumstantial and, and inferential. I mean, it is undoubtedly coercive. I mean, it, it, because slavery is coercive. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it, if she's uh, owned by him, then there there is an irreducible level at which this is a coercive mm. uh, relationship um, where where Jefferson wields the power. Um, th I think the most intriguing uh, aspect that that could introduce a, a very limited contextualized sort of uh, what would, would, would we say an agency for, for mm -hmm. Sally Hemings is that according to uh, one of her sons um, who, who talk openly in the mid 1800s about how Thomas Jefferson was his father. Um, he, he said that, that when they were getting ready to leave Paris, because the, we think that the relationship started when she was a teenager in Paris mm -hmm. and the, the 30 year or so age difference between them also feeds into the coercive nature of the yeah. relationship, but uh, that she could have, that slavery was not legal in France. And so she could have pursued uh, a, a case for her freedom. Now, I mean, it, she's a teenager and a, a slave, so uh, she she has, you know, limited resources to do this, but the, the son suggested that, that um, she made him Thomas Jefferson promise that if she went back to Virginia with him, uh, that he would agree to free any children that they had together. And if that is true, uh, that is a promise that Jefferson seems to have followed through on because he freed almost none of right. his slaves. Um, but the ones that he either, uh, several of the ones that he either let run away or he freed in his will, we think were children that he had by Sally Hemings. Um, and, and so that kind of adds to the idea that, that maybe there was some kind of negotiated, you know, aspect to their relationship, but that I wouldn't want to go any further than that because we just, we simply right. don't know. And what we do know is that she was his slave and therefore this relationship, I think by definition is coercive. So, uh, yeah, we could spend the rest of the time on that, um, and that's really important. Let, let's make sure uh, we talk about his religion, because you say a biography of spirit and flesh, and uh, you really do a nice job of trying to understand, again, an aspect of Jefferson that is not simple. There's really nothing... Well, not nothing about him. He is, in, in some ways, you could say a, a quintessential 18th century enlightenment sort of figure. That's, that's who he wants to be, at least. But when you get deep into what makes him tick, it, it's rarely simple. And so his religious views, again, you said it well earlier, we, we tend to extreme interpretations, especially with Jefferson. Uh, you know, Some have tried to make the case that Jefferson, wow, he really, look at all these things he said about Christianity and, you know, Christians, we should hold him up as he, he really became one of us uh, and a great heroic founding father, Christian, 
And of course, other people famous, you know, the most obvious example is the Jefferson Bible, cutting out the miracles and the supernatural and say that this man wanted nothing to do with anything remotely like Christianity. But you make a good case uh, for, I would say, neither of those interpretations in that as Jefferson, uh, especially later in life, he almost had something like a conversion experience, not as we would understand it as evangelicals, but moving from more skepticism or outright deism, and perhaps there's some political motivation, but I think you're arguing that there was a genuineness to it as well, that he came to see himself as a Christian, as a Unitarian. He believed in God's providence. He believed in the, the pure commands of Jesus, and he was did not believe in the Trinity or any you know, fine doctrinal formulation. You say probably the worst prediction he ever made in his life is that before long, everyone, every young man in the country would be a Unitarian. Well, um, actually, almost no one is a Unitarian. So he was very wrong about that. We can be thankful. But say a little bit more how you understand his religious commitment in particular, how it grew and changed and cemented over the last you know, 25 years of his life? Yeah, I, I think that uh, as a young man, he, he does go through a, a very skeptical phase uh, that, that could have even, you know, veered towards kind of agnosticism or, or, or I, I think atheism is probably too strong mm-hmm. because you see in the Declaration how deeply theistic uh, he is in the sense of believing in a created order. Um, that, and, and for Jefferson, this isn't, and, and everybody else in 1776, I mean, this isn't really a decision that you make. I mean, it's just, it's obvious in American culture right. at, at, at the time. And there, there just really aren't atheists um, at, at, in 1776. I mean, you, you really have to get, that word is known, but it kind of means someone who, who acts as if there isn't a God. Right. Um, and atheism as an intellectual proposition is kind of waiting until, you know, decades into the 1800s in America. And so, you know, he, he is very skeptical. And I think he even believes that Jesus, while a great moral teacher, was not necessarily even the greatest moral teacher of antiquity. Uh, you know, other he he likes the Epicurean teachers and uh, and their ideal of tranquility, and and that's part of what he's trying to do at Monticello. I think is is to create an ideal, you know, tranquil haven for himself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he he over time um, is stung by the charges that he is a heretic, that he he's not a Christian. Uh, and it, it's a huge issue in the 1800 presidential campaign about, uh, you, you know, that that people are saying in the Federalist Party who who despise Jefferson that he is not fit to be president because he is not a Christian. Uh, and so that that's known at the time that that he has mm-hmm. these uh, heterodox views. And he, he's stung by that. He's stung by the public rev- revelation of his relationship with Sally Hemings, which comes out in 1802. Uh, so that's that's widely nationally reported <clears throat> that he has this relationship with Sally Hemings. 
And so um, he's embarrassed, uh, you, you know, about these kinds of charges and reports in front of his family. Uh, he, he hates the th- thought that his, his daughters, you know, might think that he's not a Christian. Um, and, and so uh, he, at the same time, becomes familiar with some key Unitarian uh, theologians and pastors, and the most important one is Joseph Priestley, mm-hmm. uh, who is uh, from England and, and then comes to America and they develop a, an active, if fairly brief, uh, letter-writing relationship where Priestley uh, basically explains to Jefferson what it looks like to be kind of a purely ethical Christian. In other words, you, it is possible to set aside uh, the kind of supernatural claims about Christianity and things like the Trinity, which, you know, Enlightenment folks, you know, kind of mock and revile as being just nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so Jefferson is really attracted at that moment in his life, strikingly while he's president, um, that that he, could, he had found a version of Christianity that he found uh, intellectually defensible, and uh, and also ethically attractive, and and I think he was genuinely attracted to the to the you know neighborly love ideal right. um, in in Christianity that he thought was uh, unique in 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 world historical ethical context, and and so he he uh, accepts Priestley's, and, and it's not a, it's not a spiritual conversion, but as you said, but it's it's an intellectual conversion. Uh, that he goes from thinking that Jesus was kind of an important teacher of antiquity whose writings uh, we have some access to in the Mm -hmm. Bible, though he thinks lots of the Bible, including the Gospels, is unreliable. Uh, And and, and so he latches on to Priestley's version of of Jesus's ethics, and he decides, I am a Christian— uh, but he but he qualifies that by saying, you know, uh, only in an ethical sense and setting aside the, the kind of claims about Jesus's divinity in, in particular. And and that's what he sticks with for the rest of his life. And that's so when he says, I am a Christian, uh, that's what he means by it. Hmm. it it's interesting. And I, I guess I should have known this, but your biography helped me to relearn it again. You know, many of these controversies surrounding Jefferson, we talk about Sally Hemings, we talk about his Christianity or lack thereof. These were talked about within his lifetime, you know, you know, often brought up by his opponents. And so you have to take some of those with a grain of salt. But it wasn't as if these things were unknown or untalked about. And they did dog him, especially this charge of being an infidel and being too close to Hume. One one of the one of the sadnesses for me as a Presbyterian, and, and I think you know, I did my w- doctoral work on Witherspoon, and, and right. Benjamin Rush intersects with Witherspoon, and you know, Rush is just everywhere. It seems like he just kind of mm-hmm. just pops up at everything. Oh, and then there's Benjamin Rush. He's doing something important. So he was instrumental in, in convincing Witherspoon to come to America to be the president at Princeton, and at that point was you know very firmly an evangelical, a friend of the awakenings. I think if I remember the anecdote correctly, he even married his wife because she's considered John Witherspoon, the best preacher she had ever heard. And yet by the, you know, later in Russia's life, uh, he, he has more of a rationalistic, 
Christianity. So he's also influential in helping Jefferson come to terms with this new kind of Christianity that seems uh, palatable for Enlightenment sensibilities. And I you know, just have to admit that that happens and wish Rush, you know, the younger Rush hadn't morphed into the older Rush. But it mm-hmm. leads to a, a, a question, especially for you, our, our you know, expert Baptist theologian, with all of this about Jefferson and his religion, isn't it the case that Baptists were among his his most ardent supporters? And why why is that? That's right. Yeah, the, the Baptists loved Jefferson, and it was almost all because of religious liberty. Mm-hmm. Um, and he he uh, had had fought for religious liberty in Virginia in uh, the 1770s and, and 80s. Um, and at that time, uh, Virginia still had a, a, a formal established church, the Church of England. And uh, it, it was uh, in Virginia in, in the late 1760s, early 1770s, when he and Madison were sort of cutting their teeth as you know young politicians. It was also a season of terrible persecution against the Baptists in, in Virginia um, and some other places in America. But, but that's where I think were the Madison Presbyterians and, doing it? Well, the, the Presbyterians were sometimes being persecuted themselves in Virginia. Okay, okay. But, but uh, I and so apologize. The, some of the some of the Presbyterians like like Jefferson too for the same reason. But right. but the the Baptists were sort of the wildest, you know, evangelical group, and so yeah. they they came in for the most uh, persecution. And so there, you know, there were dozens of Baptist preachers put in jail. Uh, in in the by the early 1770s in Virginia, and so um, Jefferson uh, believes that the government needs to get out of the business of having an official church, um, and he he thinks that the government needs to stop persecuting people. I mean, Jefferson probably kind of thinks the Baptists are nuts, uh, <laughs> but but you know, they don't deserve to be persecuted, he thinks, by the government for their, you know, odd beliefs about baptism. Uh, and and he also knows that if they persecute the Baptists, they'll come after people like him next. Um, and and so he, he just thinks that the, the persecution needs to stop. The government needs to stop promoting one particular denomination um, and and just have a kind of free market of religion where you know the different churches are just allowed to do what they want, and so uh, the Baptists love this, and and they 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 latch on to him as as their kind of political champion, and this helps to explain why when Jefferson writes uh, the Wall of Separation letter mm-hmm. in 1802, it is addressed to the Danbury Baptist Association of Connecticut. Uh, who had written him a, a kind of, you know, really over-the-top, fawning, celebratory letter about how delighted they are that he's been elected president. Um, and, you know, they know that they're not on the same page with him theologically, but they, they love that he, he's their champion of religious liberty and is going to bring an end, they hope, to the state establishments mm. of religion. And so that it, it, creates, I think, a sort of wonderful partnership between people who are very different theologically, uh, a partnership in politics, um, and, and you know, talking about 
you know, what's redeemable about Jefferson's legacy. I think religious right. liberty, especially for me as a Baptist, is is right at the top of the list uh, because, you know, he he really he and Madison, I think, are substantially yeah. to be credited with with forming the ideas and then and then leading the political charge uh, for full religious liberty in America. You mean you Baptists didn't just start getting interested in religious liberty like five years ago or something? <laughs> no, no, we were interested when we had pastors in jail in the yeah, yeah. No, it's very, very true. And you point out several times in the book, though he wasn't looking to promote evangelical or reformed uh, men into positions, or we'll say more about UVA in a moment. Yet there was a time where he he did financially support this one Calvinist and he had friendly relations with them. So it wasn't as if these uh, sort of evangelical enthusiasts had no part in uh, Jefferson's life or in his intellectual purview or that he thought they were irredeemably superstitious. Uh, so again, I, I do think that's one commendable part of Jefferson's character and religious record, even though we disagree with him and, you know, don't go looking for good theological insight from Jefferson. I want you to just go back to the Danbury Baptist for a moment. If, you know, if they're making a movie of Jefferson's life and they need just a little bit of comic relief in the middle of all of these hard things going on, it might be the mammoth cheese episode. <laughs> can, can you talk about how this came to loom literally large in Jefferson's life, this mammoth block of cheese? Yeah, it, it really is hilarious. Uh, so <clears throat> that weekend that he sent the the wall of separation letter, it was New Year's Day weekend of 1802, and he had been uh, elected finally after a very difficult election in 1800. Uh, he he was finally named uh, as president in the spring of of 1801, and but there had been a lot of charges against him that he was anti-Christian. Uh, that he was going to lead a kind of you know French revolutionary style campaign against Christianity, and so he was looking for ways to demonstrate that he he really is uh, sympathetic to the general interests mm -hmm. of religion, which basically meant Christianity at that time in America. And so uh, he was very happy to have the support of evangelical groups when he could get it. And the Baptists were the, were the key constituency nat nationally who, not all of them, uh, there were some key Baptist leaders in the North in particular who did not like Jefferson, but uh, groups like the Danbury Baptists loved him. And, and uh, one New England uh, Baptist and, and, and preacher itinerant evangelist was, was John Leland, who had gotten to be friends with Jefferson in Virginia. Uh, by the, but by the Jefferson's presidency, he had gone back to, to New England. And uh, so he got together with these New England Baptists and created this 1,200-pound uh, block of cheese. Uh, <laughs> to, of cheese. They wanted to give him as a gift, and, and it, it was a huge media deal. Uh, about reporting on the, the progress of the mammoth cheese being brought by wagon and ship uh, from New England down to uh, Washington, D.C., and, and the newspapers are punning on everything mammoth and cheese, and, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's a hoot. And so uh, Leland brings the cheese to Jefferson, and then they, they publicize the, the Danbury Baptist letter and then his response to the Danbury Baptists, and then 
the Sunday of that weekend, Leland uh, preaches at a, at a meeting uh, before members of Congress in, in Jefferson. Um, and uh, it's, it's kind of embarrassing, too. Je- Leland preaches on the gospel text, Behold, one greater than Solomon is here. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It, it's a little over the top for my taste, but, uh-huh. uh, you, you, you know, and, and the Federalists who are there who can't stand Jefferson think the whole thing is just a total embarrassment. But it, it, it does show, I think, that, that, yes, Jefferson needs Christians like that politically to help him show that he has Christian supporters, even evangelical supporters. And, uh, and it, it also means that, you know, Jefferson... In any group that he's part of socially, he's he's going to be an outlier in terms of his religious mm-hmm. beliefs. And so he's constantly having to uh, contend with and partner with and accommodate evangelicals, reformed Christians uh, who are in his his political circles. And so he's just used to that. And it translates into the idea that he also has evangelical and reformed friends, uh, yeah. that, that some of whom are lifelong friends. So that segues to, uh, let's just have, if you can stay a few more minutes, a couple more questions. But why you say uh, Patrick Henry was the white whale in his life? Uh, Moby Dick isn't written yet, but to use that metaphor, he had a particular vituperation for Patrick Henry. Why were those two oil and water? Yeah, I I think it, it... It's complicated. I mean, there are a lot of people that Jefferson hates, and and I I, I do. And mean there were hate. other people I mean, that didn't he, like Patrick Henry. Yeah, yeah, and 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 Henry w- could be a pretty aggravating uh, figure, but uh, Patrick Henry, uh, as of the beginning of the Revolution, is the most popular politician in mm-hmm. Virginia. Now, if Washington was there, he probably would would serve that role, but he's he's gone because of the war. And then, and then his presidency, and so uh, Patrick Henry can get elected as governor of Virginia anytime he wants, um, and and Jefferson is just not that popular, and and so I think Jefferson resents that, and it turns out that uh, Henry is is opposed politically to just about everything that Madison and Jefferson want to do, uh, and and for Henry, I think it is mostly a political issue. For Madison, it's mostly a political issue. But Jefferson takes it very personally, uh, and and so it gets so extreme that by the time uh, Jefferson is off in Paris, you know Madison is is reporting to him regularly in, in letters about you know here's the latest awful thing that Patrick Henry has done, and so the height of it is that at one point uh, Jefferson writes to to Madison and says, what we need to do I think is to begin praying for. Patrick Henry's death. <laughs> you got religion there. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know if Jefferson was joking or not, but uh, they, they did write it in code. They Je- Jefferson and Madison had a secret code that they would use mm-hmm. so that people wouldn't find out what they were saying. So they wrote that in code, uh, and that's a, that's a pretty extreme thing. But e- even after Henry died, and you know, into the early 1800s, Jefferson was known to be complaining to visitors in Monticello about how Henry got too much credit for the liberty or death speech and things like that. So it really was borderline obsession for Jefferson. Wow. Uh, So uh, at the end of his life, Jefferson is thinking very much about his legacy and how he will be remembered. And he instructs for his own gravestone 
author of the Declaration of American Independence, of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, and father of the University of Virginia, famously doesn't mention that, oh, by the way, was president of the United States. And of course, uh, he dies the same day John Adams does on the 50th anniversary of independence. And, you know, how, how could a Christian population not take that as a sign of some divine favor or divine providence that these two founding fathers live 50 years and die exactly the 50th anniversary on the same day. But before I ask you a wrap-up question on Jefferson's life, just go to this last part that he mentions on his gravestone, of course, is the father of the University of Virginia, which, which was a great passion for his. And you point out that people can misunderstand what Jefferson meant when he said, uh, and he may not sit in these exact terms, but that you know, the university was going to be a secular university. We hear secular, and, and we take that to mean anti-religious. But Jefferson didn't mean anti-religious. He meant not an established religion. And actually, you know, he had a little bit of arm twisting, you say, but uh, he, he certainly saw that there would be a place for uh, religion at the table at UVA. And he it never was in his mind that I'm making some pantheon to learning that is going to bracket out religion somehow. Because, of course, in the 18th century, virtually no one conceived of an intellectual enterprise that could have even done that if they wanted to. So just talk about what Thomas Jefferson's vision was for the University of Virginia and what you think he accomplished there. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you know, you don't you don't want to go again to to one extreme or the other with UVA. I mean, it does make a a, a change in the history of American higher education, right, where almost everything was at least in large part training ministers. Right, right, and and there, you know, there there would be ministers who trained at, at UVA, but it was a more natural fit. Uh, to go to a more denominational college, in you mm -hmm. know, including uh, Hampton Sydney or something, something like that in Virginia, um, and, and and UVA is uh, one of the first sort of recognizably state universities uh, in the country in the sense that it's it's serving more of a, a kind of general public good mm -hmm. rather than just the you know the need for ministers in particular denominations. Um, and and it, it's not going to have a chapel, uh, so that that's important. But when you look at the details of what they're studying, um, it's still a deeply you know classical Christian education. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're they're studying Latin and Greek and the you know and the classics, and they're assumed to uh, you know be able to read, for instance, uh, the Greek New Testament, which which Jefferson did regularly as an adult. This is what you do as an educated gentleman in mm -hmm. Virginia in the 18 teens and 20s. And so um, when you look at, at what is actually going on at, at UVA, as you suggested, it would be very difficult. Uh, it, it, it would be so unfamiliar culturally and educationally at the time to have what we would recognize as a secular education, which is an education where there is no reference to theology or to God or, or Christian ethics or something like that, um, and and it's not it's just not what Jefferson is is trying mm -hmm. to do. If you said that he was trying to create a non denominational college, I, th I right. think that that's that's much more accurate about about what he's doing. 
Although he even under some pressure invited uh, the, the various uh, Protestant de- denominations in Virginia to have sort of houses of study and, and have an official kind of on-campus presence like that. Uh, although none of them took up his, his, uh, his offer, I think partly because Presbyterians in particular were just deeply suspicious about what Jefferson mm-hmm. was up to at, at UVA. And so, it, it, again, you know, it's a lot of traditional Christians were skeptical about the UVA project, but it, 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 it is overstated about how, you know, secular or especially anti-Christian it was. So uh, I'll try to give you a good wrap-up question here. We, we've talked for an hour, and we haven't even talked about the thing for which Jefferson is most famous for most of us, and that is the Declaration of Independence. And there's a whole lot of books on that as well. And you know, even within Jefferson's lifetime, some were saying, eh, there's too much about Right. And now there's, uh, as, as you know, Tommy, you probably follow some of the same things I do. There's a very live conversation and it's not new, but it's, you know, it is, is the, are the Declaration and the Constitution doing the same sort of thing? Or is, are, are they really, you know, is the Declaration more this Lockean individualistic rights and the, the Constitution is more nationalistic and communitarianism, or how does Jefferson's uh, declaration and his view on rights from Locke and Montesquieu and the Scottish Enlightenment, how does that jive with also this strand of civic republicanism? There's all these debates in our day and they can be traced back 250 years. But my, my question for you, and you can hit on any of that or none of that, is to ask, okay, we we see the inconsistencies, and that's a euphemism. We see the contradictions in Jefferson and at points in his life, just moral turpitude. Uh, and we have to acknowledge that. And yet he's he's on the Mount Rushmore, literally, and for most Americans, at least occupying some, some of that conceptual space. If you had to make the case for Jefferson's greatness, not dismissing, but, you know, looking square in the face, these, uh, these inconsistencies and instances of moral evil, how would you make the case for Jefferson as a great American and somebody to be celebrated? Yeah, I mean, I I think I would go in the direction, I'm not sure that we would want to celebrate him uh, personally, well, um, for, right. But, but I, I do think that there is great good that has come out of his legacy. That that's, yeah. I think that's how I would put it. And uh, one of one of them is is the legacy of religious liberty. Um, and uh, again, and it was not rigid secularism. I mean, you think of John Leland coming and preaching, and and the Congress and and the president being there in attendance. Um, that it was not an absence of, of religion, but, but it was the idea that religion will do best when the government gets out of the business of religion. And that, mm-hmm. that's the genius of the American settlement on, on religious liberty. Uh, and, and I think that that has resulted in great good. And, and then, you know, most obviously is, is his idea of equality by our common creation by God. Mm-hmm. 
uh, has been the most powerful statement of human equality in world history yeah. uh, and been used for, for great good, uh, not least by figures such as Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King yeah. Jr. Um, and, and so, you know, King in particular was, was uh, you know, deeply aware of the problematic aspects of, of Jefferson and, and particularly with slavery. And yet he is able to appropriate the legacy because the power of Jefferson's ideas and the, the, uh, the beauty of the way that he articulated this ideal of human equality by our common creation by, by God. Um, and, and he says that that's America's creed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I, I think that in a way, I mean, we, we say that we, we celebrate Martin Luther King's legacy, but I think it, he actually sets an example that would be something of a corrective to our culture of being able to appreciate and, and, uh, and even admire uh, great things about Jefferson's intellectual uh, and, and political legacy, uh, w- while certainly not endorsing uh, a lot of things about the way that that Jefferson lived, it seems to me that somewhere mm-hmm. in there is the right kind of wise, sober, uh, you know, moderate, which is so hard to be moderate in American culture right. today. But but the sensible historical view that you know not you know just kind of canceling everybody who who did things wrong, but, but, uh, you know, sitting with the contradiction, uh, sitting with the, the, you know, deep problems with somebody like Jefferson, which I do think are, are more extreme than average. Right. Um, but, but also appreciating that the, the, the legacy of Jefferson has been, has been used for great good, uh, in American and, and world history and just being able to sit with those kind of tensions and contradictions I think is a is a more uh, mature, healthy approach to history than a lot of what we do in our kind of iconoclastic age. Yeah, that's a great summary. Uh, so I'll let you have the last word, Tommy. Thanks for coming on again, Thomas Jefferson: A Biography of Spirit and Flesh. I encourage people to go out and get it. Just uh, came out recently, and then you know, follow your 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 links on whatever site you're on, listeners to. The other good things that Tommy's written, other good biographies and other good uh, in, in his newsletter as well. So thank you and blessings on the move and hope you enjoy your 4th of July and blowing something up in honor of our country's birthday this weekend. Thank you, Kevin. Yep. Good to be with you. And uh, to all of our listeners, I hope to see you. I guess I won't see you, but uh hope you can be back and join with me and our guests uh, probably at the end of the summer. And until then, glorify God, enjoy him forever, and read a good book.